Last Manager, I just, I just think it's his best play. It's my favorite of his plays. I'm not sure how, if Carrie agrees with me with that. but It's my favorite play. It's yeah. both of your favorite plays. Wow. And you know, I like the fact that um, a new generation will be introduced to it because it used to be required reading in our school system, and I don't believe it is anymore. So hmm. I'm encouraging high school teachers who have Zoom classes to t- take advantage <laughs> of our 11-day offerings. You may think you know The Glass Menagerie, but the version being mounted this year by the Tennessee Williams Festival St. Louis is like nothing you've seen before, because you won't be seeing it. I learned all about it on today's St. Louis on the Air. And before we move on, I want to remind you that the biggest source of St. Louis Public Radio's funding comes from listeners like you. Because you value what you hear on St. Louis on the Air, donate today. Go to stlpr.org donate. That's stlpr.org donate. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. First mounted in 1944, The Glass Menagerie is such a cultural touchstone, it's been made into a film twice and a made-for-TV movie twice. It's even been referenced on The Simpsons. So how to bring new life to this old chestnut? Well, how about turning it into an old-fashioned radio play? That's the route the Tennessee Williams Festival St. Louis is taking this year. And here to discuss why and how is Carrie Houck. She's the Executive Artistic Director of the Tennessee Williams Festival St. Louis. So Carrie Houck, welcome. Thank you for having me. And we're also joined today by Brian Holfeld. He's the director of the festival's production of The Glass Menagerie. Brian, welcome. Well, it's nice to be here. Thanks. So, Carrie, so many theater companies are moving their productions to Zoom during this pandemic. What made you decide to go with a radio play instead? Well, of all playwrights, I think the language of Tennessee Williams lends itself to the radio I personally achieved Zoom fatigue very (laughs) early on. Um, Just, you know, we all have so many meetings and work, and I teach at Webster's, so my classes are on Zoom. And I think we all have a need to step away from our laptops and um, gather with whoever we can gather safely with. Um, And, you know, I loved the radio segment prior to this. I, it, it is everything old could be new again. I, my husband and I really, honestly, even though I've heard all of the, the work that we've done um, on these pieces so many times, we, we, we always look forward to gathering in the living room and listening to them, mm-hmm. you know, as our little pod right now. <laughs> it, it feels like such a treat, whereas another Zoom meeting just, just feels like an obligation here. And, and Carrie, I have to wonder, what came first, the decision to do these as radio plays or the decision to make The Glass Menagerie the centerpiece? Well, I'll tell you, um, I like to work and I like to hire actors and creatives. And we, we actually produced a series of one-act radio plays this summer to see if they would succeed, and they mm-hmm. did. We did six short plays. Brian Holfeld actually directed one of them, and um, they were very well received. And the actors loved getting the work, and you know, learning a new skill set because radio acting is quite different from being on a stage or even in front of a camera. So we had our learning curve this summer. I think we were very successful. And, you know, about halfway through, I knew that we could not produce on stage in the year 2020. Mm -hmm. And I felt a need to, 
you know, hit our fifth annual festival mark. So I moved the whole shebang to the to the airwaves, and it is the full festival. Hmm. Well, Brian, you've had a successful career as a writer and an executive producer in Hollywood. Before this summer, when you got involved with the, the Tennessee Williams uh, Festival festivities that were happening then, had you ever put on a radio play? Um, you know, I had participated in one as an actor many, many years ago. I worked with Theater Project Company, and we did a uh, fundraiser where we recreated a radio show. Uh, I've done a lot of work in animation uh, as a producer and a writer, so I've been in on countless uh, recording sessions with actors recording for, for animation. Mm. Uh, I learned a lot just from watching that. And I'm a big fan of radio shows. I've um, kind of become addicted to the, the uh, old classic radio network on, uh, on Sirius XM. Um, and I just I, I marvel at the way they're able to create uh, with sound, create such a, a, a world that you can just feel like you're there. And it's all taking place in your imagination. Shows like Gunsmoke that were just—it sounds so corny now, but they're really cutting edge with sound design. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's something I I, I really enjoy, and I I left it the chance to uh, to do this. It was a challenge, but it was um, it, it, the challenge kind of becomes how do you translate uh, a visual uh, art form to solely uh, for for radio. Um, and it's it's as Carrie said though the language of Williams plays are just so wonderful that it's you, you sometimes don't need the visuals. Hmm. I want to play an excerpt from this to give people a sense of how you guys pulled this off because I think man just hearing this this minute and a ha- minute and a half of what you did it paints such a picture for people. It, I think it just turned out terrific. Um, so this excerpt, Brian, can you set the scene for us? Do you know what's happening just before this clip that we'll play? Um, it's uh, it's. It's, it's kind of self-explanatory. that It's the end of Act One, and Amanda, the mother, and Tom, the son, are discussing the future of, their, of the, his sister, her daughter, Laura. Uh, and it's, for me, it's, it's kind of the most hopeful moment of the play. Mm. Um, act One is sort of about hope and expectation, and Act Two is sort of about the reality and the disappointment of reality. But at this moment, uh, it, it's sort of the high point um, hope of, of hope in the, in the piece. Well, let's listen. You know that Laura is very different from other girls. Yes, I do know that. And I think that difference is all in her favor, too. Not quite all. In the eyes of others, strangers, she's terribly shy. She lives in a world of her own. Those things make her seem a little peculiar to people outside the house. Don't use that word, peculiar. You have to face the facts. She is. I don't know in what way she's peculiar. Mother, Laura lives in a world of little glass animals. She plays old phonograph records. And that's about all. Laura? Laura? Yes, Mother? Let those dishes go and come in front. Laura, come here and make a wish on the moon. Moon. Moon? A little silver sliver of a moon. Look over your left shoulder, Laura, and make a wish. Now. Now, darling. Wish. What shall I wish for, Mother? 
happiness and just a little bit of good fortune. And that is The Glass Menagerie as being mounted by the Tennessee Williams Festival St. Louis. It'll air on Classic 107.3 FM beginning November 5th uh, through November 15th. You can get more information on the programming schedule at TWSTL.org. Again, that's the Tennessee Williams Festival St. Louis. Uh, Man, just hearing that clip, it's hard not to to get a tear in your eye. That play is such a moving play. And and Brian, the sound design, as you mentioned, is really such a big part of it. Can you give us an example? Example of, of how you incorporated sound into this? Uh, well, the, the piece you just heard um, is backed by uh, uh, some original music um, that was written just for this production. And, and Brian, uh, don't, be, uh, don't be too humble here. I understand you composed this original music for this production. I did compose it. I, um, I worked with a young composer named Oliver Quappas, uh, who um, um, is really talented, and he sort of took the simple melody that I made and wove it into that really wonderful orchestral piece that you hear at the end. Uh, so there, so there's, there's several elements of music. There's the original music as score. There's a lot of old uh, records that Laura plays throughout that we hear, and we hear music from the dance hall across the street. So it was, it was a good way, excellent way to work the music in to give it the texture. Um, the original production had an original score, which is, has kind of been uh, forgotten about. It was just rediscovered about 20 years ago by Paul Bowles. Hmm. Um, and uh, and also used um, sound really well. I mean, in addition uh, to the visuals, I I don't know if uh, you've seen the director's notes yet, but as I mentioned in the director's notes, it is amazing that as as wonderful as Williams' poetry is in his language, there's also that visual element of all of his plays that you know you you, you picture a guy on crutches and a woman in a slip on a bed, and you immediately know it's cat on a hot tin roof. And, mm-hmm. and the same way with, uh, you know, uh, the guy at the bottom of the stairs yelling, Stella, you immediately know what play that is and what, who the author is. So it is, it, to me, it's, it's part of his genius that he is able to create those images that are so indelible, but at the same time, the language. And, and in Glass Manager, I just, th- I just think it's his best play. It's my favorite of his plays. I'm not sure how, if Carrie agrees with me with that. But it's my favorite play. It's yeah. both of your favorite plays. Wow. And you know, I like the fact that um, a new generation will be introduced to it because it used to be required reading in our school system, and I don't believe it is anymore. So hmm. I'm encouraging high school teachers who have Zoom classes to t- take advantage <laughs> of our 11-day offerings. Brian, I, I do want to ask you something that relates to this play in particular. I know Williams had left St. Louis by the time he wrote this play, and it's set here. It's set in a very specific apartment here. Um, people believe that he drew on the apartment that his family lived on, on Enright Avenue in University City. Um, and, and Brian, you grew up here. You live in Los Angeles now. Did you relate to this play's perspective of St. Louis as a place that he remembers almost as if it's, it's a dream? Uh, I don't have. I'm, I don't see St. Louis as a dream. I don't see that in a bad way. <laughs> um, um, no, I think that the wonderful thing about this play is it does it not only it captures that moment in history, in as the introduction says, you know, a time when there's great upheaval, but people are living in these in these cell-like tenements. But it's universal. I mean, you do it invokes the sort of red brick of St. Louis, and, and you know, in, in the old Central West End. But it also is our dealing with feelings that are universal. So while the St. Louis part of it kind of gives it a little bit of, a, of an entryway for us and a little bit of familiarity, um, it's definitely not necessary to know St. Louis. But it, it's kind of cool, though, to hear them mention, you know, certain things, uh, the jewel box and 
which you know is is another uh, piece of glass that um, that gets mentioned in the. The The jewel box there in Forest Park. Yeah, that's Uh another specific reference in this play. Carrie, you've now listened to this this production. I'm wondering how it changes this memory play to be able to hear it as opposed to also seeing it. Hmm. Well, um, I think the actors have a connection that I think is stronger than it might have been had we all been able to be on a stage with set and costumes and and they found this way to connect so beautifully as a family vocally because they they really hadn't met until (laughs) the day we recorded we we rehearsed via zoom and um these four actors just found so much magic in these words and again because the words were the focal point Mm -hmm. i think that um there was a lot of conjuring that had to occur and you'd mentioned that there are some challenges that come with voice acting. This is different than acting if you're on a stage and people can see you. Um, what are some ways that you helped them or that, uh, Brian, I don't know who this question is better for, and I apologize for that, but what are some of the ways you helped orient them in this new medium? Well, if I, I think Brian should address this, but I do want to say that, again, at this point, we've heard so many quote-unquote, readings over Zoom. And it was really important to me when we had auditions that even before the actors had their their audition that they understood that this was playing these scenes as they would if they were on a stage. And these were not to be readings, but fully produced plays. Mm -hmm. Brian, were there any techniques that you used to to help them uh, get a grasp on on what works for this medium? Uh, Yeah, as Carrie just mentioned, um, we... People think, you know, when you're doing a radio play, you have to sort of emote and use your voice to be very dramatic, but it's kind of the opposite, and we, I, I encourage them to play it as if it were on camera, hmm. just to keep it very intimate and very low and very conversational. Um, and also, uh, kind of a trick that uh, voice actors use, it's not a trick, it's actually part of the technique, uh, is just to break down that sentence into as many different things you can play as possible. And it just kind of brings a spontaneity to it. So it is not a reading, but it is actual. I mean, you almost, I feel like I'm, you know, listening in on these on these characters. So it's, Brian, uh, give me an example of that when you say break it down in, into as many things as possible. How, how would you do that? Um, I'm, I, for example, like in Amanda's, uh, has a couple of long soliloquies about her, her girlhood. And she's conjuring this past. And every... Every phrase is kind of, instead of just kind of going through, uh, you know, so-and-so did this, and he did that, and he did that, you just break it down into every beat, into every action, and, uh, and give them as much to play as they can. And they, and they found it. I, they, they, um, they kind of dug in there, and, uh, and it was such a great cast. I didn't have to do much at all. Mm-hmm. Just, they all responded so well so quickly, and... Um, yeah, I couldn't be happier with that. And, you know, one of the things that we've learned about um, Zoom and everybody doing things remotely during this pandemic is you can find talent from anywhere. Were these all St. Louis actors or did you cast a wider net? Well, actually, Brenda Curran is a New York actor. And I met Brenda through my Tennessee Williams world outside of St. Louis and New Orleans and Provincetown. And she is such a marvelous interpreter of Williams like, you know, no other. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Teeter lives in New York, but um, came home to stay with her parents because of the quarantine, because of COVID. In fact, she was uh, she had just begun rehearsal on a Broadway show that was short circuited 
Um, and then we were fortunate enough, fortunate enough to, to have her in our one acts this summer and have her play Laura for us. I told her years ago when I knew her uh, through um, our first festival, or maybe it was our second, when she did a reading for us that she had to play Laura one day. Mm. And the timing was impeccable. Bradley Tejeda, uh, again, a New York actor. He was uh, an understudy in the Tony Award-nominated The Inheritance. And again, he um, took a pause when the pandemic hit, and uh, he was with us this summer and for the Glass Menagerie. So, so this is a superstar uh, cast. You were able to get yeah, some talent that, that would have been yeah. pretty hard to get in, in a normal circumstance. Yes, and again, because we rehearsed via Zoom, no one really physically had to be in town until the day we recorded. And, mm-hmm. you know, we figured it out. They were all in separate studios. Everyone was safe. Brian was phone patched in, and uh, it really worked out well. So, Carrie, I've been uh, so excited to talk about The Glass Menagerie because, like you guys, I really love this play. But I don't want to give short shrift to the rest of this festival. I understand you've got two One Man Williams productions also a part of this and a couple works that are not by Tennessee Williams. In our final couple minutes here, can you just give us an overview of of some of the highlights? Yes, I would love to. Uh, Ken Page kicks off the festival with an essay that is actually one of my favorite essays called Something Wild about Williams' uh, work as a playwright with the Mummers. And the Mummers were a community theater group of sorts who worked out of the Wednesday Club, which is now the Link Auditorium. And it's that beautiful theater there still exists. Jeremy Lawrence has two brilliant one-man shows, one about Tom and his sister Rose, Mm -hmm. and the other about his difficult relationship with his father. Um, Jeremy Lawrence, again, like Brenda Curran, is a brilliant Williams interpreter, and he's been with us twice before, so we're so happy to have him back. John Guare wrote a darling play that's sort of a sequel to The Glass Menagerie called You Lied to Me About Centralia, and it takes us uh, to the Del Mar train station where the gentleman caller picks up his fiancée, Betty, after having dinner at the Wingfields. And Glass is a recently written play. Uh, I think it's only been produced once before by Michael Amon um, about the opening night of the Glass Menagerie in Chicago, Illinois. And it imagines a dressing room scene with Laura Taylor, who played Amanda, and a young Tennessee Williams. Hmm. So there is a lot here to feast upon. Um, And there's Zoom panels uh, via our website with every scholar in the country. We're so lucky that, you know, we have this gorgeous network of of Williams scholars who help us year after year. And um, we have an audio tour of Tennessee Williams sites around St. Louis since we cannot do our bus tour this year. So, so this is an audio tour where people can do this on their own is the idea? Yes. And we have a beautiful narration by Joy Hofsommer, who um, is an actor who lives in Illinois. And actually, she's married to one of our scholars, Tom Mitchell. And he wrote this beautiful narrative to accompany the audio tour. And Joy, who's a marvelous actor, recorded it for us. So there's a lot. The plays, will, will, we're able to... Um, Stream them through November 22nd if you miss the live airings. Ah, 
Okay. Well, there is yeah. a lot of good information there on the website for the festival. That's TWSTL.org. You can also find that on our website, STLPublicRadio.org. And Carrie Hauk, Executive Artistic Director for the Tennessee Williams Festival St. Louis, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. And Brian Holfeld, Director of the Glass Menagerie, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks a lot. And I do want to note we're going to go out of the show with Brian Holfeld's score for this new Glass Menagerie. You can find all of our past episodes of St. Louis on the Air at stlpublicradio.org or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.